Authors Howard Berger and Marshall Julius pick the brains of a panel of film and television's greatest masters of makeup effects. That's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the show. I'm Philip. On the HAN podcast, we bring the haunt industry to you every single weekday. We have news, education, and on-location coverage from Halloween experiences around the world. Whether you're a professional or enthusiast, each episode helps you better prepare for Halloween. Outside of this podcast, we have videos, education, and even events. Links to everything are in the show notes. Today, we'll hear the history behind some of the most iconic creatures, appliances, and makeup effects on the big screen. This audio was recorded live from a panel presented by Nostalgic Nebula. In it, authors Howard Berger and Marshall Julius pick the brains of the panel of film and television's greatest masters of makeup effects. This panel was recorded live back in September at the Mont Blanc Theater in Hollywood and is used with permission. Here we go. Hey everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this, this evening, this afternoon. To, uh, to be a part of this, this incredible whirlwind Masters of Makeup Effects tour. My name's Marshall. I co-wrote the book with Howard Burgo, who I'm going to introduce. And we've got some amazing people here today um, to, uh, to answer some questions and to answer your questions. Um, the history of, of our book goes back to 2006 when uh, I interviewed Howard for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe for a British newspaper, and he made me up as Mr. Tumnus. It was the only time in my living memory that I had hair. And uh, we just hit it off, but until Howard picked me up at the airport, like uh, last week, that was the last time that we were in the same room together. Our friendship's been entirely um, over Zoom and phone calls, and for years we talked about putting a book together. You know, Howard loves... Um, movie books just like me, and the thought of making something that would go on people's shelves, all of your shelves, just like absolutely thrills and delights us. So we, we worked really, really hard to, uh, to make this happen. And, and so far, the feedback has been like amazing, incredibly gratifying. And so we're going to write another 12 of them. So please come back for all of those. So um, without further ado, you know Howard. I mean, he is you know, you always say, man who needs no introduction, and, and then you introduce him, but it's like, Howard's a, a, a talent that I, you know, can't fathom. It's like two, three times a week, I'll whack a movie on to watch it, like late at night, and it's like 90% of the time it says, effects by Howard Berger or KMB, or, you know, I see, oh, look, he's from Dust or Dawn, and Howard's a vampire, and he's biting Tom Savini, and, you know, it's just, like, so present in so many of our favorite things. So, um, please let me introduce my co-author, Howard Berger. Why, thank you. Let's see. Huh? Thank you, Marshall. Thank you. That was very nice. So... Yeah, it's either my name or then anybody who's sitting up front who's going to come up. Yeah, Their that's names true. on every movie as well. Um, as Marshall said, you know, this was a book that... Um, it, there's a book called Making a Monster that uh, we all grew up with. And uh, I always thought there should be a sequel to it because it, it was so cool. But it never was. They never did one. So I thought, well, let's just write our own. But it'll, it'll be different. But that's a good leaping off point. That was a good point of, of reference. So... The last two years, you know, when the pandemic hit, I didn't have an excuse to not talk to Marshall. Hey, pandemic, yeah. 
And uh, we wrote this book. And, and what was great is I, I made a big list of all the people I wanted to talk to and reached out to everybody. And everybody was so accommodating and so supportive and so willing to do it. And it was, we ended up interviewing 70 people from you know, makeup effects artists to editors to VFX to um, directors to actors. And because we really wanted to cast a wide net and get everybody's... Um, uh, you know, viewpoint, you know, not just makeup artists, but how does a director deal with makeup artists? Like, how does John Landis work with Rick Baker? And how does Rick Baker work with John Landis? Mm -hmm. So, which was all very interesting. <clears throat> it was almost like the same story, but told very differently. So, <laughs> um, and, uh, and from VFX and how we work with VFX and how we, and how the relationship is with actors, you know, because we all have you know, usually pretty close relationships with actors. And, and it, it was great to hear what they had to say about us. Um, and for the most part, it was all positive, which was nice. So, but um, anyhow, we have a really cool program tonight. Like Marshall said, uh, we're going to do, invite everybody up. Marshall will introduce everybody. They'll come on up. You'll know what they did. And uh, we'll be asking questions. Everyone's going to get a question. And then we're going to ask questions of the audience. Afterwards, we're going to be doing a book signing out there. So there's, if you, if you want, there's books for sale which is great, so uh, we'll be standing by to sell you books. If you have a pre-ordered book, let me know and I'll get you the pre-ordered book, just give me your little tag. There's also t-shirts and we made this um, cool little collectible pin uh, that we have today as well. So we'll Yeah, because we're rock that. stars now, so we thought we want our own tour t-shirts. Right, right, and we tour, want pins. So. But anyhow, here we are and why don't we go ahead, why don't we start inviting people up and absolutely all that good stuff, what do okay. you say? Yeah, I think we absolutely should. Okay, so, can I please have the stage, Mr. Bill Corso. Yeah. Emmy Award winner for 1994's The Stand, Academy Award winner for a series of unfortunate events, and Oscar nominated for Foxcatcher. Perhaps we should have ended with the Academy Award winner. Should have. There's so much more. I know, but we only did three for yeah, everyone three. because it's we just, don't it's play favorites. A, a taste of your genius. Okay. So. So, great. You. Bill Corso, Bill Corso. Oh, yeah. Yes. Bill, sit, take a seat. Sit wherever you want. Mr. Garrett Immel to the stage, please. Drag Me to Hell, The Orville, and Emmy winner for The Walking Dead. Has anyone heard of that show? I think they've heard of it. Mr. Greg Nelson to the stage, please. Oscar nominee for 1989's Dad. Won Emmys for The Tracy Ullman Show, Star Trek Voyager. I'm such a Star Trek nerd. And Tropic Thunder, everyone. Mr. Jamie Kelman to the stage, please. Emmy Award winner for House and Behind the Candelabra. I most recently created lots of crazy stuff for the Book of Boba Fett. <laughs> Mr. Ken Diaz to the stage, please. <laughs> Ken has a lot of crazy stories in the book about Heaven's Gate and Roar, and uh, he's just done pretty much everything. Westworld. Black Panther, Alienation, he's the man. Oh. And two Oscar nominations, sorry, you can. And three Emmys, come on. 
At three Emmys. <laughs> Mr. Kevin Haney to the stage, please. Kevin won an Academy Award for Driving Miss Daisy and multiple Emmys for The X-Files and Primetime Glick and tons of other fun stuff. <laughs> Mr. Leonard Engelman to the stage, please. Oh, yeah. I think Howard's going to... So we have Leonard's, Leonard's credits going back to Night Gallery. We're talking Cat People, Ghostbusters, Oz the Great and Powerful. An amazing career, amazing career. Margaret Prentice to the stage, please. The Howling, The Thing, and Seven. Mr. Mikey Rotella to the stage, please. The Walking Dead and the Orville. And uh, the recent Hellboy, just amazing art, amazing work. Mr. Stephen Prouty to the stage, please. How the Grinch Stole Christmas, Zombieland, and Bad Grandpa. Tammy Lane to the stage, please. Gosh, I, th I think we're running out of stage. Tammy, of course, worked on The Shallows and the Lord of the Rings trilogy and is an Oscar winner for The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And finally, last but not least, Vivian Baker to the stage, please. Emmy winner for Grey Gardens, Oz the Great and Powerful, and Oscar winner for Bombshell. Um, hey, Cody, can we get just three extra chairs up here, if possible? Just because we're a little shy. Just three chairs? Thank you. Yeah, okay, Kevin. We know how that goes. <laughs> All right, I'm going to... Oh, yeah. Bill, oh, yeah. Okay, let's kick off. Now, everybody can have a few minutes to answer your first question. If you overplay, I've got the Academy theme on my phone, the playoff music, and we'll... No, I don't. I don't. Please feel free. No one's in a hurry to leave, so just don't it's rush not off. not good starting with me first, because I'll go 20 minutes on one question. <laughs> now, um, for the book, you talked about the challenges of transforming Steve Carell into John DuPont for Fox Catcher. We'd love it if you could talk a little bit about what worried you about the project because you were sort of reticent at first and how you overcame those challenges to create what in the end was a, just amazing Oscar-nominated makeup. Um, we, uh, uh, so as a makeup artist, we all get asked to do things sometimes that are a little crazy. I think in the book I use the word uh, scary or your projects you may be scared of. Or um, In my book, it was t taking a very recognizable actor and turning him into somebody else because I personally, and I'm sure everybody on this panel has seen the reviews of movies where they, they tear your makeup apart no matter how great it is because you change what an actor looks like. Um, I'll never forget when I made Jim Carrey into Count Olaf, 
the head of the studio said, that's a horrible makeup because I cannot tell it looks like Jim Carrey. <laughs> uh, you have to change it so I can tell that it's Jim Carrey. And it literally was like a nose and a brow piece, but she couldn't tell. So on Foxcatcher, I was very concerned that if I changed Steve Carell a lot, that I would get destroyed, the movie would suffer because the press would just say, why is Steve Carell wearing all this makeup? Like some of my favorite makeups have been trashed because reviewers tend to look at that. So the director said something very profound to me, which was, he said, listen, he said, if we all do our job well, that won't matter, <laughs> which I had a big question mark about. He says, if you do your job well, and you turn him into the person he's supposed to be, and Steve performs it well, and I direct it well, then the audience will forget that they're looking at a makeup within like a minute. And I was very concerned, but I put my faith in him. And the guy had done two movies up to that point. Uh, this was Bennett Miller, the director, and, and they were both nominated for every Academy Award. Uh, it was uh, Tr Capote and uh, the Moneyball. So uh, I put my faith in him, and, and sure enough, he was right. I mean, Steve Carell is totally not Steve Carell in the movie, and, um, and he did a, a brilliant performance. He got nominated for an Oscar for acting, and, um, and, and after multiple tests, I took the Kevin Haney approach of, of makeup testing, where I tested him five times, and it still was not good enough. Um, and that was something I picked up from Kevin, because Kevin, it's never good enough. He just keeps testing and testing and testing. Um, and, and, and ultimately, we came up with something that, that worked for the movie and it didn't distract, I think. It's good to be a little scared sometimes, though, isn't it? Keeps you fresh. Yeah, I think you must be. And actors will tell you the same thing. The scarier a project is, the more they think they should do it because they, you want to challenge yourself. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, it is horrifying, but uh, that, that sometimes brings out the best in you. So, Garrett, I have a question for you. I would really like to know... <laughs> Now, Howard said, um, ask Garrett about the boob head makeup in uh, Little Nicky <laughs> and the challenges of working with Kevin Nealon, because I know that, uh, you know, a, a lot of makeups can be very challenging for actors, especially if they're not like suit performers. So if you could tell us a little bit about, about oh, sure, that. Sure, you know, Kevin was no stranger to prosthetic makeups having been on SNL, but I know he had had a life cast uh, done at some point in his career that, that did not go real well. And from that point on, he developed pretty severe claustrophobia. Not so bad that we didn't get through the live cast and uh, the, the makeup itself was effectively like a bald cap with these sort of water-weighted breasts on his head. Um, As you and, do. And when we did the first test, he was a little bit hesitant, but uh, uh, let us do our work. Uh, his little issues with the weight, uh, his biggest challenge was with what we used to make him up. We used uh, what's kind of the industry standard at that point in time, Pax paint, to make him up. And the, the feeling of the paint on his skin is what gave him the most difficulty. So Craig Reardon, who I was doing the makeup with, and I decided to do it old school and, and use rubber mask grease paint because that's what Kevin was familiar with. And uh, it went great. Uh, in addition to that, he just, over time, kind of got over his, his claustrophobia and discomfort with the makeup and was more comfortable with us doing more and more and reintroducing the PAX paint. Um, 
putting water balloons in the breasts. And by the end, you could not have worked with a more, uh, uh, I'm not sure what the exact word should be, but I don't wanna say compliant, but, but he was willing to go the extra mile to make sure that the makeup was good, as good as it could be. So how, how, how long did he have the boobs on his head for? Was, it was not just, how many times did you apply that makeup? Oh, I, you know, I can't remember because initially it was just a bald cap and then the character gets the breasts on his mm -hmm. head. 10 times perhaps? Wow, that's a lot of boobs. Howard may have a better, better yeah, memory of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it. Yeah, he was great. And boy, that guy could down Krispy Kreme donuts. It was really <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so, Greg, uh, we have a great picture in the book of you helping Olympia Dukakis go full grandma, as I said, in Dad. Um, in writing the book, I learned the challenges of creating a realistic old age makeup. It's one of the greatest, most rewarding for an artist, um, especially if you can create something that actually nobody even realizes is a makeup. That's the kind of ultimate thing, isn't well, it? Well, that was kind of part of it, is that um, when I did Olympia's makeup and had a maker in her late 70s or early 80s, uh, she was only 55 at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, Dick Smith had come in Kenny, you know, uh, and did a test on Jack, but he wasn't contracted to do um, Olympia's makeup. And they wanted to see how they both looked on camera together. So when Jack had done the test, and then Kenny and I were gonna do the, the film, mm -hmm. um, Kenny was gonna do Jack and I was gonna do Olympia, but her makeup hadn't been designed at all. And so I designed her makeup. And um, I don't, I'm one of these guys who doesn't like to use uh, reference material in terms of photographs and stuff. I like to go to life and find out what life looks like because if sometimes when you look at a photograph and you see wrinkles and you're trying to figure it out, those wrinkles kind of only work for that face. Yes, you can find out the direction and this and that, but to really find out what an old person looks like, you have to see an old person. So when I was uh, studying before I did the test, I literally would go to Ralph's grocery store and I would hang out in the produce section <laughs> because... Um, that sounds pretty creepy, Greg. But it, and it's absolutely true. And I would just kind of stare at these people because they'd hung, hang out there more than, than not. And uh, between looking at all of their faces and taking all of their features and liver spots and everything, um, I was able to create uh, Olympia's face. Um, and I think I counted, she had 27 pulls on her face when I did that. So with stipple, if I'm sure you all know what that is. But um, it was a lot of fun. And I think I did it about 56 times or something. And I think Kenny did it close to 80 on Jack. 80 worked, uh, Jack almost worked every day. And uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, it was a challenge. But I, I really work from life. I've been drawing all my life. So uh, I take pictures in my head, as artists know that they can do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they photograph them in their head, and that's what they pull from. They don't, I don't usually use uh, reference material. I never have. 
How did right. Olympia like herself as a really old lady? Because we spoke to some people and they said that sometimes their actors don't really like her, this view into their future, that it's yeah, a bit she, disturbing. She was okay with it, um, but I went through probably five different guys that were doing the pulls that I would direct them to, to because they were either pushing too hard or this or that or whatever. And we finally found somebody that worked with her. Um, but um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, and it was certainly a challenge. And again, like what, what Bill was saying, mm -hmm. I don't think anybody knew she had a lot. Of, they thought she was that age. Yes. But if you see her before and after, it's like, this is major. But nobody knew it. So anyway. I know everyone who saw her after the movie thought that she'd just gone to a great plastic surgeon. They and well, just... they, I was told they just thought that she put a wig on. Mm. They didn't know she had all this makeup on. So. Well, but thank you very much. So, Jamie, when we uh, chatted um, for the book, you talked a lot about your many collaborations with Ben Foster. And actually, when we interviewed Ben, he talked about his many collaborations with Jamie Kelman. And uh, you clearly worked together amazingly well. Um, he really uses the makeups to get into character and sees it as sort of an integral part of the process. And um, for one of your most recent collaborations, The Survivor, you created more than 15 different makeups to play Harry Haft in what the Holocaust survivor in so many different stages of his life and so many stages of health um, I'd love to hear a little bit about that process. I mean, how do you how do you dive into a project that involved? well um, I should first say that I work with Ben Foster because Howard put us together on Lone Survivor Thank you Howard and uh, I've done four <laughs> movies now with Ben <clears throat> um, but each time it was kind of pushing it further. And I think he just became more comfortable in the fact that it was gonna look real enough to not look like he had a face full of makeup. And then he'd become emboldened to, to wear more and more. And um, <clears throat> I talked to my wife, she said, I shouldn't tell this story, but it looks like I can. It looks like the right kind of place for it. But we did three years in a row of movies and one of them we were getting, starting to get ready for the next one, mm -hmm. and I started building makeups in the trailer to test how he would look. And we thought we had some time, and I put a nose on him to start developing this Harry Haft character he plays in The Survivor, and then they said, actually, we're gonna need you to come to set. So Ben looks at me and says, leave the nose on. <laughs> and so there is a scene in another movie of him wearing a makeup from a different movie <laughs> that it's in there. <laughs> you got away with it. But that also made him feel like we can get away with it and mm. we could push it further and do more. Um, I, I, I said something in the book that I still think about Dick Smith as a teacher to so many of us. And he uh, had a relationship with Dustin Hoffman where they did a bunch of makeups together. And then at some point, it fell apart, and that happens sometimes. Uh, basically, the short version, Kevin Haney could tell it much better, but my understanding is that for, toots, for Tootsie, Dustin Hoffman wanted to be a prettier woman than Dick Smith was able to make him look. Mm -hmm. And Dustin thought maybe it was a failing of the makeup. And, you know, Dustin is, without a face full of rubber, he can only look so much like a woman. And, um, you know, the, the movie worked out great, and, but that was kind of the end of that relationship. And Dick talked about it. He used to write columns, and, and I remember he said, 
that he realized that even though they kind of argued about it, Dick felt that Dick was actually in the wrong because an actor is naked up there when they're on this big screen and you can see all their pores and all their flaws and you have to protect them as their makeup artist. You have to support them and make them feel confident that they're gonna look good and they're not gonna look silly and they're not gonna look fake and they're gonna look great. Mm -hmm. So with Ben Foster, I, I feel like we kind of reached that place where that trust was developed and we were just able to go further than I've ever been able to go makeup wise mm -hmm. anywhere else. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Jamie. Okay, now, Ken, um, I really wanted to ask about you um, uh, hitting Mickey Rourke around the head with a plank of wood, but we're not going to talk about that. that oh, you'll have on. to get the book for. And then I really wanted to ask I'll tell you, the story outside, guys. Tell the story outside or read the book. You can buy the book. That's fine. Um, and then I really wanted to talk about how you um, like fought man-eating lions on the set of Raw, but we're not going to talk about that either. That's also in the book. That's just a little preview. But what I'd really like to talk about now is your work on The Thing, which probably people have heard heard of. I mean, you know, we asked everybody what, like, uh, what do you think of the most iconic makeup movies ever made? And, and the thing was, you know, like, it was joint number one with like Planet of the Apes and, uh, you know, American Wealth in London. It's just unbelievably iconic. And, and so, you know, you're instrumental in putting together the, the chest chomp scene where Richard Dysart's character loses his hands. And, uh, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about that and working with John Carpenter and how you got away with such incredibly crazy madness um, on, on camera. First of all, um, I was just a, one part of the thing and we had amazing artists, Margaret was apprentice here. Yes, of course. Part of that also, and it was all under Rob Bottin, a 22-year-old makeup artist genius that came up with all these great concepts and we were just, uh, had to, we had to put, try to make that happen, the stuff that he came up with and the work that him, uh, Mike Plug did and illustrating this all. And, and then it was our job to kind of, okay, we're going to make this happen. So uh, it was a team effort, it was a major team effort. Now for the, uh, the arm chopping for Richard Dysart's character, um, uh, I had prepared some gelat two sets of, of gelatin arms mm -hmm. uh, that I had uh, taken out, hollowed out, Took a, it took a, cut them down to the back, hauled them out, put in uh, layers of muscle structure, gelatin muscle structure, uh, dental acrylic bones, and, uh, and blood tubing, and kind of pre-scored kind of the area they were going to rip ahead of time. Close, super glued them back up, the seam back up, uh, put dowel rods into it, and then super glued it. Then um, painted it up flesh colored and laid hair on it, and I prepared that the night before. We had the uh, mechanical chest rip that was um, set up, and I, uh, there was a scaffolding over the top of it that I laid down and suspended the arms over the top, the gelatin arms. And um, we had um, these uh, uh, um, pneumatic um, uh, ribs that chomped down on mm -hmm. the arms. And, um, Dean Cunty, the DP, was on a camera. John Carpenter, yeah, amazing DP, and he was he was such such a major part of the uh, success of that film. Dean Cunty was a makeup, he had studied makeup, was a makeup fan, 
and he was the one that helped bring everything to life. Said, oh, it was a team effort. And it's hard to get a team effort nowadays. Uh, I mean, so he was totally on board. And uh, anyway, I just want to shout out to Dean Cunty on that. Um, so the first take, um, it was like the, <laughs> the uh, ribs chomped down on the arm. And I did a little twist and pulled out and chomped down on the, the pieces inside the stomach. And um, we're, gonna, we're set up to do t take two. So I asked the mechanical guys, hey guys, keep the, uh, the ribs chomped down longer on this one, because I want to do a little more twisting and pulling before you let up. So second take, chomped down, I gave a lot of twisting and turning and pulling and tugging and ripping oh. of flesh. And uh, I love the big smile on your face when oh, you're yeah, talking about great. this. It's just. Yeah. And uh, John Carpenter goes, cut! I goes, and he's looking, he pulls his, his uh, eye up from the camera lens. He goes, oh, gosh. He goes, that first take was a hard R. Well, this one's an X. <laughs> I go, okay. So afterwards, I, I, I went over and I said, hey, John, I don't know how you're going to get this in the movie, man, because I just did uh, my bloody Valentine and did some very realistic effects on there. And I go, oh, this is going to blow Savini stuff away. This stuff is so real. Well, the sensors cut... 90% of the stuff out that we did on, on my bloody Valentine. That's terrible. So uh, I said, I don't know how we're gonna, either gonna get through to the sensors. And John looks at me and goes, I'll get it through. So sure enough, the movie came out. We did the last effect with the dog head pill the Friday before there was a sneak preview in Vegas that was that close. The whole film was assembled, missing that one little shot of the, dead, the dog head peeling open. Yeah. And we went, we, that was that close, and the movie came out three weeks later. So anyway, um, I asked John, you know, he said, I'll get it in the movie. Well, I saw it was in the film, the, and he goes, so the first take was in the film. And uh, I saw him on They Live uh, a couple years later. And I said, hey, John, how'd you get it in the movie? He goes, that he had submitted the film with just the, the, uh, the ribs chomping down on the arms, mm -hmm. and then he cut to the double with these stubs, uh, arm stuff was laying, uh, coming back. So then, after the, the film had a, an R rating on it, he added the, the uh, he added the back footage and put back it in. Arms getting chomped on. That's all right, great. So he did get it in. I just can't believe anybody got away with that. I'm so glad he did, though. All right, thank you. Guys. Oh, thank you for your story. So Vivian, um, we would really love to hear a little bit about your collaboration with Kazu on Bombshell, specifically about transforming uh, Charlize Theron into Megyn Kelly. I mean, incredible work. Well, thanks. Oh, very sweet. First of all, I'm pretty honored to be in this group of uh, great artists here. So this is pretty impressive, I think. Thank you guys for letting me be here. You know, Kazu, I, he asked me, he actually texted me, I mean, he sent a text through Instagram to see if I wanted to do Bombshell, <laughs> which I thought was kind of fascinating. <laughs> and at the time, I wasn't going to have anything to do with Charlize. And there were other prosthetics that needed to be done. And he was only handling three of the characters. And then my team would handle the rest of them. And... Um, so we did a test at his studio, and Charlize did her own makeup. Her point was, is Kazu will do the prosthetics, and, and she'll do her own makeup. And um, I never really heard anything about that. But like uh, right before we started our actual camera test, the producer came to me and said, oh, by the way, did I tell you you were going to be doing Charlize? And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I have my plate full with these other amazing women. And they're like, no, no, you're doing Charlize. So we had to rearrange the schedule until Bill Corso could come in and help out with Nicole Kidman. But the bottom line is Kazu, I mean, 
Um, Charlize had requested for Kazu to come and build this character for her, and what he did was these beautiful, really, really fine pieces. They were so faint, but they really changed her structure. So he created her structure for what she would be before the makeup, and then I had the great honor of putting the makeup on top of the pieces and bring it all together into the character of Megan Kelly with the makeup that would be Megan Kelly um, on camera a lot and then beyond that. But the pieces were quite extraordinary. It just, it, it built her structure. It was literally all it was meant to be in the paint. It was just the kiss for that and then I would do the rest. But he built these eye pieces. You know, Charlize has so much real estate for an eye. Any beauty makeup artist would lose their mind for it. We had to get, he had to get rid of it. And those pieces were incredible. And a little difficult to wear with contact lenses and lashes, the weight, you know, so heavy and everything else. But beautiful pieces that went across her eye there. They were so tricky to put on that no one could get them on but Kazu. And she finally said, I can't have anyone even try. I mean, he re-sculpted them like five times when we were shooting. And just the little bitty bits, and it changed her structure so much that when you went to do the rest of the makeup on top of her, she transformed into Megan Kelly. And of course, my job was to not muck up any of the pieces. Fortunately, I know enough about prosthetics doing them that it, you know, we, we could do that. But it can be a tricky place not to do that. You know, not to mix it up. But, um, no, she was great. But uh, she's a makeup artist, Charlize. So being a makeup artist to a makeup artist was interesting. But she was great. I loved it. We had a really good relationship. She seems particularly keen. Like, there's some actors who are just, who just love the process, who love makeup. Like you said, could, could have almost had a career as a makeup artist if not becoming um, an actor. Does that, does yeah. that, is that a big help? Or well, do you actually get nervous because it's like she's looking at it and she's like saying, oh, maybe you should do something else? But she grew up in ballet, so she was really a makeup artist. So you have to come in and, and you know, you have to let them be a part of the process. And if they're not a part of the process, then, you know, and you want to control it, you'll never get there. And then what happens is, is that once they trust you, that your, your eye and your agenda is their agenda, mm -hmm. then they let you do the things that you need to do. And that, and that takes time. I mean, trust is important. At the end of the day, there's no disclaimer on the screen that we messed up. It's all their face. It's mm -hmm. all about them. And so, you know, that trust, and I've heard that all through here, the trust is really one of the most important things, and we have to morph ourselves a lot for that, don't we? Thank you very much. Now, Kevin, you know, in the book, you stress the importance of standing your ground with directors of photography. Um, you know, everybody has their own uh, priorities in making a movie. But ultimately, it's all about working together and finding the right ground. Um, but sometimes you really have to stand up for your makeup and, and for your actor and make sure that your makeups look best on film. Could you talk a little bit about working with Roger Deakins on the Shawshank Redemption? You told us a story of like a courtroom scene and... Well, Shawshank Redemption uh, takes place like when Tim's supposed to be as Andy Dufresne in his early 20s to, mm -hmm. in the book, he's supposed to go to 80, but they decided to make it like 10 years. It was really hard because it's like middle age is the most thankless age makeup to do. Uh, and we're there on the day in this courtroom and all the light is coming from these huge windows uh, on Tim's uh, camera left side. And his 
other side is in darkness, and it's completely, Tim was working on, <laughs> Tim had a bad habit of working on scripts at night, so he was writing like uh, Cradle Rock and uh, uh, Dead Man Walking every night, like till four in the morning, and then he'd get up and come into makeup. So he had these huge bags in his eyes, we put as much makeup there as we could get away with without going three-dimensional, and I, I went up to Roger, who's a brilliant cinematographer, mind you, uh, and just said, Roger, um, uh, Tim needs a little help. He says, what do you mean? He said, well, can we put some bounce or something coming from the other side so that, you know, it kind of smooths him out a little mm -hmm. bit more? And he looks at the windows and he looks at the other side where there's nothing. He says, there's no light sources over there. What, where's it going to come from? <laughs> and I went, can we make something up? You know, uh, and, you know, he, he compromised, you know, he knew that Tim needed to look as young as he could at that point. Uh, so he, he did, he violated his own rules and put a bounce there. It's interesting that on Blade Runner uh, 2047, mm -hmm. he created a, a ring of lights, a ring of LEDs that he could put, it's a huge ring, and he can do what he did on Shawshank effortlessly without any source. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to, you know, think that it went back all the way to that. But I think he was thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Lighting our makeups is, is the single most difficult battle. They don't light anymore. They light rooms. Mm -hmm. And, you know, God bless Dean Cundy. He was one of the, on Death Becomes Her. He, you know, was responsible for... He had all kinds of tricks. He had something called a snooted midget, which was a small baby uh, light source with a six-foot foam core cube. And he would shoot that light onto Meryl Streep to just soften everything out. It didn't take anything away. But it was the most amazing thing to look at. And he, you know, he was a cinematographer, cinematographer. And I've, I've been lucky, I've had a lot of good cinematographers, but not all of them want to accommodate us. Mm. On The Babe, uh, Haskell Wexler had a real problem with me because uh, his son did a documentary. I, I now know he didn't like my makeup. Well, I come to find out from his son's documentary, uh, Tell Them Who You Are, that the man is colorblind. So my makeup must have looked like hell to him. Mm -hmm. And it must have drove him crazy. Uh, because I think Jamie Kelman said on, uh, uh, on his film that he was taking black and white pictures to double check his makeup every day with the black and white filter on his phone. Uh, but anyway, Haskell was really, didn't like me saying anything about cinematography. <laughs> uh, there was one day where John Goodman, who was playing Babe Ruth, was standing over a light source. And I had just worked with Owen Roisman, who put a screen over the light for Granny to make her look better. Mm -hmm. Ooh, well, stupid me. You know, I come in and he goes, hey, Kevin, John looks like he's got a mustache. I can see the piece. Can you do anything about it? And I said, well, could you put a screen on the light? And all right, everybody, four-hour relight. <laughs> and he completely 
humiliated me in front of everybody. He completely relit the scene because I asked for a screen on the light. And it was like, now one day he tried to trap me. One of the things that I like to do is to look at the camera setups. I mean, he thought I was a little smart ass. He'd go, eh, we're gonna put some smoke in this, but you know that works as diffusion. You know everything, don't you? He stopped putting the little stickers on the camera because I would read them, <laughs> you know, like whether it was an 85 filter or whether it was unfiltered or whatever. And one day we were outside and I look out, I look at the monitor and there's nothing on there. John's not in close up. And I look in the back and there's Haskell Wexler with a three foot lens, you know, a huge telephoto. And I went, oh no. He's trying to catch me by shooting John in a close-up without telling me. <laughs> so I made sure that John looked great. And the next day in dailies, it's like he goes, huh, John looked really good. Maybe he looks better if I don't light him. <laughs> Kevin, thank you very much. Now, Leonard, um, we have a wonderful picture of you in the book with the creature from the Pickman's model episode of Night Gallery, just absolutely iconic. <laughs> I'd just like to ask you about collaborating with John Chambers on the job that earned you your first Emmy nomination. Sure. Uh, just one, one point that I go along with Kevin, I often said that, that a cameraman lights the set and then the actors get in the way. <laughs> uh, I served a, a three-year apprenticeship at Universal. And during that time, uh, luckily for me, John Chambers was there the entire time. And um, so I learned a, a great deal from him throughout that time period. Uh, and then uh, I was very fortunate to have been selected for Night Gallery which was probably one of the most difficult series that I possibly could have been on because it was uh, continually beauty makeups, uh, facial hair, prosthetics, uh, ball caps, you, know, you name it, everything that, that you could have in the book uh, we did on Night Gallery. And then one, uh, one show called for uh, Pickman's Model and there was a character, I think you're seeing it up here. Um, there was such a conglomeration of things. John was so clever. The leggings on, uh, on this character were actually uh, leggings from uh, um, um, uh, Legend of the Black Lagoon. And they had uh, an area out in Universal in the back lot where they still stored a number of the, the moles. So we used those leggings to sport them, a uh, number of things, but most of it was done all the way through. John was so talented that if uh, scleral lenses were needed as they were on, on this, uh, he would make them. He would just have a little smoothing machine and he would, uh, he would make them. There wasn't anything that John couldn't do. Uh, and so that 
really was probably one of the most beneficial things. I, I had the opportunity during my three-year apprenticeship to work, work um, around a lot of different makeup artists and, and see what they were doing and how they did it and learn from them. Uh, but John was really the champion. When he was um, going to be over at 20th Century Fox to do Planet of the Apes, he called me up and said, listen, I want you to come over and do uh, work on Planet of the Apes. I said, oh God, John, I'll tell you what, um, I'm in such a secure position here, I, I never miss a day. And uh, I just, I've got a pass. Um, and uh, one of the, uh, you know, sometimes you make mistakes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it would have been a wonderful thing to do. Um, but um, I, as was said, um, for Pickman's model, I, at the time I was the youngest makeup artist nominated for an Emmy. And, uh, you know, truly, uh, truly a, a wonderful time period, as have all the other time periods, actually. I've had a great career and enjoyed decades of it. Well, thank you so much. Now, Margaret, um, you talked a little bit in the book, uh, for the book, about your experiences on Robocop, which is a big favorite of mine. Uh, specifically, you told us about the scene where Murphy's all shot up and he's taken to ER, like practically in pieces, and you're dressing uh, Robertine's, uh, he created these amazing wounds, and you're dressing them with blood, and Rob's telling you not to cover all his beautiful prosthetics <laughs> to go light, and uh, you actually had ER, um, ER doctors um, in the scene, like real ER doctors uh, playing the doctors, and they're saying, no, actually, it would just be like wall-to-wall -wall blood, blood everywhere, you wouldn't see anything. Um, <laughs> so it's a fine line, isn't it? Uh, finding that balance between real life and what works on the screen, and I'd love to talk, you know, your ideas, your ideas of that. How do you find that sweet spot that's not exactly realistic, but it looks real enough and it looks good on screen? Is that <laughs> Yeah, that that was uh, the only only part I had on Robocop was doing the it was first day of principal and it was the um, hospital scene and uh, yeah he had a whole chest piece that had gunshots and a head a head wound bullet wound and uh, and all these. ER people, I thought they were actors, and then when we were setting them up, they were telling me that they were actual ER people that they put in there to do all of the process they're supposed to do to, um, while well, he, when he gets pulled in there. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, they thought, oh, wow, it looks great, and I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. But he said, but it would be like just solid blood, like a river, and <laughs> you wouldn't see anything. But that was, uh, you know, those were my orders mm -hmm. <laughs> from Rob, was to make sure you could still see something of the sculpture. And um, there are, the, and I do tend to, when I do a lot of gore makeups, I try to um, either reference actual medical, medical books. Um, and I did 
like I've done two years on a medical show and um, with uh, Steve Laporte. So mm -hmm. I was doing, he would say, oh, um, someone gets impaled in their arm. So I, I had some, um, I took some blades from a Joshua tree that I had growing in my backyard because the blades on a Joshua tree are about a 10 inch needle. And so I took it and I had some appliances that he had and I put it into the arm so that it looked like he had stuck his whole arm with a huge blade from a cactus. And uh, so, you know, that was little things like that I'd make up and, um, but I would usually, I do like to use reference books. Mm -hmm. Some stuff you can't use it because it's so real that if you did a makeup exactly like that, people would think it wasn't, that it wasn't real, that it was just, you know, ridiculous. Like you'd overdone it. Yeah, you could, people won't believe it. Oh, so you actually have to pull it back to make it seem sometimes believable. Sometimes you do, or sometimes you have to kind of redesign it a bit because um, the real thing, sometimes it just doesn't, doesn't seem real. And even on, on uh, when we were doing the thing, when Rob was um, coming up with designs, mm -hmm. we used to <laughs> we used to have because we didn't have cell phones back then, so we'd have medical books. And there's uh, one book that I guess I mean it's pretty horrific, but we used to call it the dead baby book, and they were <laughs> forensic books, and they were like pretty graphic. Um, pretty horrible. You know, you're looking through it to get ideas. Little by little, you realize you're holding the book back here because it's just too intense. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, we, that's the kind of reference we would, we would be using. And I would, you know, use them a little bit for color too. Usually you could look up medical books and you're checking degrees of bruising and, and age of bruise or the way blood spatters. Uh, so uh, that kind of detail, um, I really like to focus on that kind of de the detail of, uh, of an, of whatever the, um, whatever the wound or whatever mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got, I think that deserves a round of applause because thank you. Thank you so much for looking at so many horrible dead babies and things just so that we could be like grossed out and horrified and entertained. We really appreciate that. <laughs> Tammy Lane. Oh, uh, hello. I can't believe I'm up here with all my legends here that I have inspired me most all my life, like before I even thought I was going to be doing this. So. Tammy, you told us a fantastic story about you've been working on um, the Lord of the Rings movies and you've been doing orcs for like years, for like three years doing orcs. And then one day you thought, oh, screw it, I'm just going to do something different. Because, I mean, you know, you can't keep doing the same thing every day. I mean, even if it's for, you know, amazing film or just... But that turned out to be like an amazing experience and you absolutely changed someone's life, I think. So can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, that's like one of my favorite stories. Um... So I was fortunate uh, enough to go work on Lord of the Rings. Uh, Howard fired me, so I had nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
I was part of the orc crew and we would get stunt people every day. And if you got a stunt person and you were doing an orc makeup, they were gonna die. You didn't have to worry about continuity. You didn't have to do all that. And, uh, but we did this for years and you know, you, you just kept trying to see what else is different. And uh, this one day in the trailer, I like stepped back and stepped on a piece of chain mail and I cracked it in half uh, with the heel of my boot. And uh, this uh, stuntman slash carpenter uh, came in and you know, he was getting his makeup done. So you know, you have a box of chins, a box of noses, you know, head cowls, different ears, all that. We have pretty much run the gamut of every possible combination. And I thought, oh, I just wanna do something different. And um, I'd started piecing in these, this, these chain mail, I just was snapping chain mail in half and I started to put it down the middle of his face mm -hmm. like, uh, like football players when they put stickers on their helmets, like big tackles or like, you know, so this was um, their kills. So this was like them decorating themselves through kills. So I, I did this like mohawk of chain mail down this orc's face and, uh, and I sent him to set. And we didn't take any continuity notes or nothing like that. And he goes to set. And uh, his, uh, yeah, his name is uh, Lee Harvey. And he, uh, he's just this brilliant, like, fun guy. And he's up for anything. And he arrives on set. And Peter Jackson took one look at him and loved it. And he decided to put him in a, a scene with Christopher Lee. And he gave him lines. And so... Yeah, he's the one day, who says... The trees are strong, my lord. The roots go deep. The it's, roots go deep. He's one of the most recognizable orcs. Yeah. But you didn't have any notes. You didn't take any pictures. No, so. I, I was just trying to do something different. And um, we didn't take any pictures. But to get that scene, I had to redo that makeup five times. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, what nose did I use? What ears did I use? You know, because, you know, we were all out till three in the morning at the bar. And, you know, you're just kind of in a haze sometimes. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, and Lee, he, to this day, he still writes me. Every, he goes off on convention. He, like, goes off to Lord of the Rings, OneRing.net, you know, and, and, uh, and he's so grateful about it. And it was just like this happy accident that just happened because we were all just trying to figure out something new mm -hmm. to do, mm -hmm. you know, throughout this thing. So I'm very, I'm very proud of that, and I'm very happy for him. And I'm so happy he, like, that's, like was so good to him, it was so good to me, so. No, it was wonderful, thank you, thank you. Now, Stephen, I know you've worked on a multitude of different things, but I would really like to ask you, because um, we have to ask somebody about zombies, like, what makes a good zombie? What are the qualities that make a good zombie, do you think, in your experience? Mm, well, um uh, I'd say the performer really is the key to selling it. I mean, you could just paint somebody with blood and call them a zombie, and if the person is really selling it, then, you know, you believe it. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, I always like to work with the actors in the chair and, and discuss the makeup while we're doing it, even if it's a background player, mm -hmm. because they're going to be in the makeup all day long, and you want them to give as much as, as they can to your makeup and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 find, I find the collaboration is, is super important. And so what are, your, what are some of your kind of, 
Have you done really elaborate zombie makeups on, on actors who then just sort of stood there and didn't really sell it? Absolutely. You get the, the Bigfoot effect where they move like this and, you know, they're, they, they don't sell that, that it's an actual uh, uh, look to it. It's, it's just they're in a makeup mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and uh, you immediately, it just takes you right out of the, out of, uh, the scene, out of character. But didn't you say on uh, Zombieland there were some people who were perhaps too enthusiastic? Ah, yes. Uh, we had one guy, uh, I'm sure Jamie remembers this fella, who uh, was a bathroom zombie. And he, uh, he decided to add a little bit of his own flavor to the scene by actually throwing up while we're <laughs> shooting it. And, uh, while you're shooting it? Yeah, and, and the actor that was in the toilet or in the, in the stall who he was attacking was mortified, but uh, uh, so perhaps he went a little bit, a little too far with it. But, but that made it into the movie, yeah? Did that oh, absolutely, it? it's in the movie. You can't waste something like no, that. No, 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 that's a, that's a classic right there. Oh, thank you very much, thank you. Now, Mikey, um, Howard, uh, a lot of our book is about how um, Dick Smith's generation of artists um, inspired Howard's generation and about how, um, you know, he, he's, he was like, I'm not going to act like I'm in competition with everybody. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to share my secrets. There's, there should be enough work for everybody. And if you're good enough, you know, and so he gave a lot of people chances. And, um, and you know, Howard experienced that work with legends of the industry who, who gave him a chance and lifted him up. And, you know, and so Howard's generation wanted to do the same, wanted to pay it forward. So you told a wonderful story about how you turned up at KNB. Is how old were you, a teenager? You turned up cold. And uh, tell, us, tell us about that and what that meant to you that day. Well, I just, I just want to say that, you know, I have no business being on this stage. I have no business being in this book. Oh, uh, that's you, crazy talk. I mean, that's crazy talk. This, you guys are all legends and you guys, you know, you inspired me and, you know, you're the reason I'm here, Howard especially. And I just, I just got to say that that's a perfect example of, of, you know, what that meant to me. Just walking in cold. Everybody says, don't just walk into a shop. You don't just walk in and try to show people your book. But that's exactly what I did at K&B back on Woodman Place. And uh, the receptionist, it was Veronica at the time, I think, and, and, and she looked at me like, are you nuts? Like, what are you even doing here? And I was like, look, I'm not crazy. I just want to show some of my book. And it just happened that you were walking out of the offices behind her. And she kind of like looked at you like, what do I do with this guy? And you're like, yeah, 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 let him in, let him in. So he gave me an hour long tour of the shop. I met a bunch of people, you know, he introduced me to Greg. And then after that, he sat down with me, looked through my book, you know, gave me some pointers and just like was, was super open about everything. And that just means a lot. I know there's a lot of people here that are probably trying to start in this business and it's like, I'm living proof it's possible, you know, and, and I'm, I'm a, I just call background masks, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't belong up here, but I'm just so grateful and lucky to, to be a part of all this. And I appreciate that. Thank you, Howard. And you know, thank you, Marshall. I mean, it's huge, but I will say, it took 13 years for him to hire me. 13 years a later. long time, yeah. I worked at K&B, so it's kind of funny. <laughs> Aaron Kruger, Metcash, thank you so much. For, uh, so glad you made it in. So we didn't introduce you, 
multiple Emmy Awards for American Horror Story, American Crime Story, Feud, Bet and Joan, and Oscar nominated for Hillbilly Elegy. Yes, thank you. You worked a lot um, with Evan Peters on American Horror Story, and you know it was his enthusiasm for makeup, uh, makeup effects and transformation, and because of Ryan Murphy's enthusiasm for the Andy Warhol uh, makeup um, you did on Evan, you guys ended up doing um, character after character together. And can you talk a little bit about what it was like on the craziest day when you had like 30 minutes to turn Evan oh from God. Jim Jones into Jesus? <laughs> That was um, American Horror Story season of Cult. And um, Dave Anderson's shop, um, AFX, was doing all of the makeup effects for it. And when these characters started coming up and Ryan said he was going to have you know, different cult leaders, and then he said, I want to do this whole thing with Andy Warhol. And Dave said, well, I have these Andy Warhol pieces. Let's just put them on him and not say anything. So. We did, and uh, Ryan loved it. And then he started deciding that he was gonna do all of these other characters with more prosthetics. So the day that was super crazy, a lot of those days are crazy on that show, but this was a really crazy one. And we were doing two units. We were shooting the Manson family across like town, across uh, <laughs> Los Angeles. And then we were doing a whole Jim Jones thing out in this field. So there was just tons of background and Evan was playing Jim Jones, and they wanted to, at the end of the night, of course, change him into Jesus, where he's coming down out of the sky on cables. I mean, it's just totally bananas. Just a usual day at work. Yeah, and so we ended up, um, Dave and Mike McCash and myself and Michelle Siglia, ended up changing him over, took all of his prosthetics off, which were like, you know, nine-piece prosthetic makeup, and then changed him into Jesus with a beard and mustache and like your typical kind of Jesus that you see, like white Jesus, right? With Classic like the Jesus. Longer. Classic Jesus, I guess. And, and then we rushed him out there because the sun was coming up and he's like <laughs> up in the sky, like 50 feet in the air and he's just like hanging there as Jesus. So it was, it was we called him a 30 minute Jesus because that's, that's how fast we got out of makeup and into the other one. So it was pretty crazy. And we, but we got to do a lot of really cool, um, we got to do them as um, the um, Hale-Bopp Comet cult leader guy, I can never remember his name, but like, contacts, we had to get him out also on a, on a sunset shot for that same thing and change him back over into somebody else. And um, that's kind of just how that show goes, but I ended up getting, um, Ryan started calling me prosthetic hag because I was just like, let's do another one, you know, if you want to see this. Oh, he's like, yeah, let's do that. So that was that. <laughs> so it can make a big difference, can't it, when you have an actor who's so into the process and is so prepared to go through the pain of it and uh, so wants to experiment. His enthusiasm for it, Evan's enthusiasm, actually made change the show, didn't it? Absolutely. And he did, um, he also did a David Koresh that year, which was like a nose and a wig and like all kinds of stuff. And he's just really enthusiastic about it. He knows all the pieces and all the parts and the, you know, things we use and everything. So he's, um, he'll always wear contacts. He loves to have all kinds of different things, new, new concepts, new, new things to do. He always is up for it. And um, he's actually starring in Dahmer right now, which is really incredible. His acting is amazing. I didn't work on that, but it's a really amazing show that he's in. He's an incredible actor. Well, thank you very much.
So, Howard, what do you think? Should we open it up to everybody now? Yeah, I think so. Can we have the lights up just a little bit, please? If possible, so I can see. I'll go people. down and hand okay, the mic you around. Do that. that sounds lovely. And you can be stage guy. All right. So, uh, if you want, raise your hand. Marsha will come to you. But if uh, ask any questions you have for anybody up here, any questions? Any okay, questions? Okay. Here we are. Right there. There's one. Do I sign up? Yeah, if you like, and just tell us who you are and ask your question. Hi, I'm Carolina. I'm from Bogota, Colombia, and I came here to be a makeup artist in Los Angeles. Um, I want to ask you all, uh, how do you cope with like the imposter syndrome, if you ever feel it? How do you cope with the imposter syndrome? Yeah, like before a job or when you get a script or like, you know, like, am I good enough to do this? In, are you saying in terms of uh, in, uh, of us being imposters, or uh, no, or, no, or, ju or just uh, <laughs> like when you have like a creative wanna, block? Kevin, and... Kevin's going to take it. Okay. He knows exactly what being imposters about. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so as somebody with a basic problem with standing up for myself, I totally understand the uh, imposter syndrome. Uh, it's something we're not supposed to say that we have, but uh, we do. It's like, I, I don't know about anybody else, I can only speak for me. But there are times where uh, five in the morning, I'm driving to set and I go, today's gonna be a disaster, I'm not, you know, why are they paying me? Why am I on this show? Why am I here? And you don't listen to that person over there, you go over to this, you know, where the angel is, and you go, you know, the one that says, you're gonna do fine, it's gonna be a great day, and everything's gonna be fine, and we're gonna have rainbows and unicorns at the end of the day. <laughs> now, somewhere in between is reality, but part of it is just, I mean, everybody up on the stage is like, <laughs> this great fucking makeup artist, oh, sorry. Uh, but, you know, it's like, and- That's okay, you know, we're not on TV, you can swear all you like. Oh, great. Uh, but it's, it, it's like, he, I got to work with Dick Smith, and one of the things that he was so afraid of was ever being wrong and ever failing. And that made him the perfectionist that he, that made him famous. And we take our demons and we, you know, put a collar on them and keep them in our pocket. And we acknowledge that they're there, but we, we maintain professionalism, and we try not to let those demons get out. Uh, I don't know, does that answer your question? Okay, great. <laughs> okay, who's next? Anyone got a question? Question? Any other questions? Uh, right at the back here, making me work. Can you? Hello, how are you? This is Rochelle Uribe. <laughs> uh, so, quick question. What do you guys take under consideration when you have more than two or three projects aligned? Or like, I mean, at the same time? Or Bill, you want to answer that? Yeah. You can. <laughs> sure. Uh, can you, wait, so when you have two or three projects, in, like, how do we decide? That's an excellent question. I still don't know how we decide. Um, you, I'm in the middle of that right now. Um, you know, uh, how much does it pay? <laughs> Usually, correct me if I'm wrong, everyone sitting here, the very best jobs don't pay well. Like the, 
the most artistic jobs don't pay that well. The ones that uh, you're probably going to really sink your teeth into and grind at the artist in you and and struggle and torture yourself don't pay that well, but ultimately are the most satisfying. And the ones that um, are kind of easy and they're no-brainers and you kind of feel guilty doing them are the ones that pay much better. So I'm, uh, you know, I'm currently, I have a potential movie that is artistically very rewarding um, that has a lot of pluses and, and some minuses. And I have one that it's got some artistic merit, but it's kind of a no-brainer, and it's going to be really fun and easy. And and uh, I can't even use the money because they're both about the same money. So it's very hard. It's very hard to pick which one's going to be the one you wind up going with. Ultimately, the one you pick is the one you're supposed to do, I think. Um, the good ones and the bad ones. Because even the very bad jobs that I've been personally been a part of, I did for a reason. And I learned a lot, and I, I'm as miserable as they were, and to the point of uh, death. <laughs> I look back and say, I was supposed to do that job because I learned something very valuable. Um, and I can't say that for some of the other ones. So uh, every job that you do is the right one. That's great. That's great, Anyone over here? So I don't have any to walk to the questions? back of the theater? Come on, this okay. is your opportunity to ask like the masters up here any questions you guys want. Hi, this one's for Aaron. How do I work for you? <laughs> yeah, Aaron, that's easy, right? That's yeah. A <laughs> yeah, how do we work for you? How do we get a job with you? Oh my gosh, guys. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, well... I think there's probably other people up here that hire, um, you know, a lot of potential people, but a lot of the shows that I do are union, so you probably need to be in the union. And then you need to, like, contact me and give me your information and reach out because that's how you get jobs. You're not going to get a job while you're just sitting at home. No one's going to just hand you something. You have to work for it. So that's part of the getting a job with anybody up here with any in any capacity in the film and television businesses, you have to reach out, put yourself out there. So that's how it works for me, is the person that calls me and says, I would love to work for you. Sometimes you get to have the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Aaron, Aaron, how, yeah, because I, I, when you and I first met, we were both working in shops and all that good stuff. Yeah, we were kids. So yeah, talk a little bit about we that. We were literally kids. Uh, we were teenagers is when I met Howard. Um, I got in by, uh, I took a makeup effects course while I was working at a ski shop. It was for Sandy Berman out in Westlake Village. Yeah, Sandy was one of my, was my first mentor. And she basically gave me like a list of shops to call and was like, go forth, call these people. There wasn't like, you'd either write letters or you'd call, call people. So that's how I got in is I went and went and applied to all the different shops that were in town. My mother drove me because I had not driven like five miles past my home at that point. And she was like dropping me off in these weird warehouse areas going, oh my God, I'm sending my child, like 18 year old into this, you know, warehouse building. But John Beekler ended up giving me a job and I ended up, yeah, he's, he's start, it's like Roger Corman, like he's started so many people's careers. 
And I worked as a shop girl for a long time. Woo, shop girl. And, um, <laughs> and I worked in the shop and got so much experience. And I was paid very little, but it was like learning with getting a little bit of money. So I was, I learned so much there. And um, I just kind of, I did that for about five years. I worked in different shops, worked for Stan Winston and Rick Baker and all kinds of people. And, um, and then I kind of just started moving on and doing department head stuff. But that's how I got started by cold calling. So that's how you... You know, it's the person that's, you know, constantly calling and annoying people. They finally go, oh, my God, okay, just come in. I showed them my little crummy book of pictures that I had of my makeups I did on myself. So you just have to push. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, who's next? Ah. Here you go, oh, sir. Andy. Andy's got a question. Of course I do, Howard. <laughs> Since Ken can't share any of his roar stories, I'm curious if anyone has any stories of working with animals, be it having to put a makeup on an animal, which is something I've been thinking about for a while you did. throughout history. Yeah, Gar Garrett is uh, very proficient with horses. Uh, I guess it was probably 2002, I got a panic call from Craig Reardon. Uh, That's weird. They were, <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, he was working on a movie called Hidalgo, and they had to match, uh, I think, seven horses to the hero horse, and they hadn't been able to totally figure out how to do the paint jobs on the horses so it would last, uh, so it wouldn't injure the horses. And so I went in and basically, with about two days of prep, figured out how to airbrush uh, all the markings on these horses. Um, and I did that for seven months. It wasn't very glamorous. I did it in Africa. I did it in Wyoming. Uh, but it bought my house, so. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it was all about silent compressor. Everything I could do to not spook the animals. That's, that's what it was all about. Just get in and get out as fast as you could. Thank you. Yes, very good. What's Thank you very much. Oh, yeah. Well, just to add to that question, so Tammy and I worked on that movie Water for Elephants, and our job was to make up Ty the elephant every day. And um, there's scenes where he gets whipped by Christoph Waltz, and there's these big cuts and scratches and blood and all that stuff. But we had to figure out a way, because they would shoot you know, multiple scenes through the day, and... Um, elephant skin is really, really porous. So if you, if we put fake blood on, it would stain the elephant. So I was like, okay, we got to figure something out. So what we did is we ended up taking KY jelly and flocking, and we made like a flocking blood, and we would uh, have pre-made strips. We used like third degree, and we just kind of made scars, and we just like put a little bit on on Ty's um, skin and just squish it in there, and then hit it with the KY and. And uh, we'd shoot that scene and then just peel it off and wipe them down really quick and there was nothing there. So we can, and then we'd go back and forth all day long. And um, through the course of the shoot, it was a long shoot, we were shooting out in Fillmore. Um, after a while, the elephant got really familiar with us and we would just show up and the elephant would just come and stand in front of us and just wait for us to do the makeup. And then, yeah, it was, it was, it was great. And then Tammy got a photo, a really good photo of Ty grabbing her in his trunk and lifting her up in the air. So that was a, a really fun job. But animals are, animals are fun, you know, they can be. So until they bite you, I guess. But Ty was cool. Ty was a, a cool, cool animal to work with. 
Okay, I've got to say that uh, I didn't mean to forbid anybody from telling stories. So uh, why don't we just give yeah. Ken a chance Ken, to Ken, tell, us tell us about Roar. Yeah, tell us about yeah. like your first day. It was the first day, right, that you've ever been on a set? Uh, first day as a professional makeup artist, yes. So that was an easy, <laughs> easy day. Nothing I much was, happened. Uh, called my, I went to a, a makeup school, Allegan's Academy of Professional Makeup, and uh, they had a placement service. And I got a call to go out to Acton, California. There was a makeup artist graduate that was out there and done some testing and decided she didn't want to be involved. It was uh, Noel Marshall, executive producer of The Exorcist, had married Tippi Hedren from The Birds. Mm -hmm. And they had gone on a honeymoon to uh, Africa and saw an abandoned ranger station that the lions had taken over. And they based the story off of that. And it was a, a, something to get Tippi's career back going. And they bought like 150 cats and they put a compound out and act in California. And uh, they were gonna do this original scene. They wanted to raise, they had $5 million that they had put into this and they wanted to get some more money. So the first scene what they were gonna shoot was Noel Marshall. It was actually, he was the star of the movie. And he was like, he was playing a king of the beast. He had raised, in the, in the story he had all these lions and tigers and cougars and black panthers that lived on a house in a lake, on a lake in Africa. The first scene we wanted to shoot was a scene where he was gonna break up a lion fight. And they had raised two sets of lions on this compound, two different prides, and they mixed the two alpha males together and enticed them to fight. And he- Yeah, so that's not something they would do anymore, really, like encouraging not, two- but <laughs> I was told when I got hired that I was not allowed inside the pens, the, uh, the camel, they had fences with camouflage. If I, was, if I went inside there, I would be immediately terminated. I said, no problem, I won't go in there. And uh, so we set up the cameras and um, they, they brought out the two sets of lions and they put them together and the lions start going at each other. Noel Marshall ran in there, hey guys, break it up! And he broke up the fight. And he did it again for take two. Take three, he went in there to break up the fight and a lion chomped on his hand. And there was arterial bleeding shooting out like 15 feet. And he, he ran down to the, by the lake, it was a lake, and he pulled down a weeping willow branch and the lion charged him and chomped on the branch. And then they were able to break up the fight and now he's bleeding and everybody's going crazy. Get the cats away, put them away. And I'm like, oh my goodness, where's, where's the medic? This guy's bleeding. There's no medic here. <laughs> <laughs> so they send the costume guy who was also doing uh, props and he went and got some sheets and they ran back and they're wrapping his hand like a mitt with these big chunks of sheet. And, they're, and I'm like, this guy's gonna bleed out because those things were just turning red, red, red. And I'm just watching from behind, outside the fence, and, I, and I'm screaming, guys, he needs direct pressure. I had been in the Boy Scouts, uh, Marine Corps Explorers, and ROTC. I had a lot of first aid training. And I know that you need direct pressure on this one to stop that arterial bleeding. And I'm at the fence screaming, guys, stop. You gotta, you gotta put direct pressure. And nobody's sitting there, everybody's screaming, trying to get the cats put away. And, and I, I like, oh my gosh, so they had like a double fence to get into the, into the uh, pen. You have to open up one door, close that door, and then eight feet in front of that is a second door. 
So I got into the second, up to the second door. I'm eight feet closer, and they're not still, not, I'm yelling, they're not paying attention. So I'm just like, oh, this guy's gonna bleed out. So I opened up the gate, and I stood up against it, and I'm looking around, and I see, I think the cats are away, I don't know. And I, I just ran over there, and I'm yelling at the guys, you need direct pressure, and they're looking, who's this new kid? I just, it's my first day there. And I go to him, and I tell the, the customer, I goes, tear me up some sheets, tear me up the sheets in strips like this. And they're looking at, who's this guy? And I start unraveling these big chunks of bloody sheets and throwing them on the ground. And I finally got to the end, and I'm looking at his hand, and it's an elongated shaped cut, looked like raw chicken meat around the edges. And the part that freaked me out is I could look through his hand and see the grass. <laughs> you wanted this story, okay. So anyway, I took the sheets and I pulled in a little piece and put them one on here, put one underneath, and I sandwiched um, sandwiched my hand, laced my fingers, and I said, all right, you gotta lay down, you gotta go into shock. And he's screaming, he's going, he's running around, and I told the first AD, tell him he's gotta lay down, he's gonna go into shock. And nobody's paying attention. And I just finally just kicked his, the director, my boss, his leg out from under him, and put him on the ground, I go, stay down! <laughs> and thanks to you, they were able to finish making Raw, one of the classic films of our yeah, time. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyone who's got a question? Yeah, let's do, uh, let's do one more question, please, and then we'll get into the signing. Here you go, sir. Uh, <clears throat> I guess my question is for you, Howard, being oh. that you're the, the B of KNB. Yes. Um, way back in the day, it uh, seemed like uh, when our, they were casting, getting background extras for Army of Darkness, just about all my friends from the Renaissance Fair, a bunch of reenactors, everybody was cast to go out and fight the Deadites and whatnot. And so I've heard a lot of their funny stories about working on that. I'm curious to hear some fun, funny, whatever, yeah, crazy on, on war of, stories from your side. Army of Darkness was <laughs> hilarity. I mean, Garrett was with me, too. Garrett was working for Tony Gardner. It's the first time I met Garrett. And... Uh, uh, at work related, we met at a party or whatever, but um, it was crazy because we, there were no rules, we weren't union, we were out in Acton, right by Shambhala, where Kenny shot Roar, and we'd hear at night, like three in the morning, hearing the lions roar all night long. So they built this castle in the middle of Acton, and we, uh, Sam Raimi was the director, we shot six days a week with Sam, and then one day, Sunday, with second unit. This guy, Doug Leffler, who, anyhow. And uh, so, but we worked seven days a week, and we were making flat, you know, we flat rate. I think Bob, Bob and I did all that stuff. Bob, Greg joined us when we went to Intravision to shoot all that stuff. Um, but we were making $700 a week, Bob and I, and, uh, and this and the uh, Mark Mark Tavares was on that show too, right over there. And um, we were uh, the production was so cheap that Bob and I and Wayne Toth rented a, a hotel room every night because the stu the studio wouldn't get us one, production wouldn't get us one. So we would shoot all night long and get back to the hotel. We were already jazzed, so Sam would make sure the bar was open, so we'd do a little drinking and then go to bed and then start it over again. And we'd be back on set at three a.m. So. Every day was hilarity because it was just insane stuff. Uh, regarding like our dead-eyed actors, we found dead-eyed actors having sex in their costumes. Um, we found one guy who kept peeing in his costume. 
uh, which I just said, guess what? You're going to take it on and take it off and don't ever bring it to the trailer ever again. But, you know, yeah, very strange guy. Um, a lot of just crazy stuff. We were shooting. There was one stretch where we did, I counted, it was 27 days straight. And Rob Tapper was the producer, Sam's producer. And I went up to him one day and I'm like, dude, listen, we got to have a conversation about this. He's like, all right, I'll, I'll be right back. You know, I, yeah, we'll talk about it. So I'm waiting and waiting. And I go to the first AD, like, where's Rob? And he's like, oh, he left. And I look over and I just see Rob's car driving over the hill all the way. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess we're going to keep shooting. Um, it was a really difficult show. It was really, really hard, but it was really, really fun. And we were all in the trenches literally together because we, for all those dead-eyed puppets, they, we, we dug these giant trenches, you know, that were, I don't know, probably six feet high or six feet deep. And we were in there with the puppets on backpacks and all this crazy crap and bugs every night and exhaustion. And yeah, it was a really hard show. But at the end, it was really fun. And, and I just was watching some video of Bob and I puppeteering something. And there's big explosions going off. And we just have like a sound blanket over us. And like fire is falling on top of us. And I'm watching going, what the hell were we thinking? Like, that was so dangerous. But, you know, we just did it back then. That was 1990. And we're like, yeah, it's for Sam. It's okay. It'll be really, really fun. But, you know, all the shows, I think, like, the, all of the stuff that we used to work on in the 80s and 90s were kind of, like, throw caution to the wind. Now it's, like, super, super, you know, everybody's so safe. It's so boring on set. Um, no one's going to get hurt. Uh, but yeah, no, it's, it was crazy stuff. And all those movies were like, that was Dust Till Dawn, all, you know, Evil Dead 2. I mean, we didn't know what we, on Evil Dead 2, we had no idea, Bob, Greg, and myself. We were literally kids. And we were just running around a forest all night long in Wadesboro, North Carolina with Sam, you know, doing the shaky cam and all that stuff. And it was, it was crazy. It was crazy. But those are, those are like the things I always remember. Like those were my, my, my I always say my college was on Day of the Dead because that's the first time I did a location. I was 18 years old and got hired to go work with Tom Savini and that, you know, he's the ringleader of, of, of Tom Fullery. So we're trying to work and he's like, come on, let's go cause trouble. Let's go light a fire. Let's do this. Let's do something, you know, let's blow something up. So it's, a, you know, those of us that have ever worked with Tom, you know, know it's, it's a lot of fun, but Tom's the last guy that wants to like get to work. And you're like, no, I think we're, you know, I'm 18 years old. I think we should be working, shouldn't we? <laughs> It's like, but you're 45 years old and you're in charge, but like, okay, never mind. I'll go with you. So, um, guys, thank you uh, for listening to all our stories and coming tonight. Um, I, I want to thank everybody, everybody here, up here. These are, aside from, whoops, aside from just being great collaborators of the book and supporters, these are all my friends. And that was one of the things when I wanted to talk to my friends and I, uh, I've known people for 30, 40 years, and through this whole experience, I got to know more about people, things I didn't know. It was really enlightening and really wonderful, and it was great to reconnect the whole, during the whole pandemic because of this, um, this project. But, you know, I couldn't have done it without all of them. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Philip Hernandez, with post-production by David Swope and original music composed by Chris Thomas. We're counting down to Halloween with daily podcasts, videos, and events in our 61-day Hauntathon. Follow along at the link in our show notes. Our Hauntathon is made possible through generous support from Gantam Lighting and Controls. Gantam illuminates attractions worldwide with the world's smallest intelligent spotlights. See what you're missing with a free demo. Sign up at gantam.com slash demo. That's gantam.com slash demo. 
Our Hauntathon team includes Daryl Plunkey, Emily Louise Rua, Megan Spells, Gavin Burns, and Omni Adventures. Our partners for this year's Hauntathon include Sharp Productions, HorrorBuzz.com, ScareTrack, TheScareFactor.com, and Hauntopic Radio. The best way you can support us this Halloween season is by sharing our Hauntathon with someone you think will enjoy it. And to follow along to our Hauntathon, sign up for our weekly newsletter at HauntedAttractionNetwork.com. We'll catch you back here tomorrow and every day until Halloween. This is a Haunted Attraction Network production.